So that's what is unique about what I've been able to do in my book. For the first time, I've been able to track down some of these former agents, some of these spies, using techniques that journalists have been using for many years to not only interview them, but also to put alongside the documentation that I've managed to have declassified by the British government and really to check and see what kind of information, secret information they were collecting. And more importantly, to what use that was being put. Political violence, clandestine and cover operations, strategic theory, conflict and security studies. Dr. Aaron Edwards explored these topics with us, sharing also a few words about his book, Agents of Influence. Hello and welcome to the Diplomatic Academy, The Conversation. I'm your host, Petros Petrikos. This episode deals with strategic theory, political violence, and terrorism. It is quite an interesting, multifaceted, but also contested concept uh, altogether. And for this episode, we're hosting Dr. Aaron Edwards to give us his own insight about this topic. And Dr. Edwards, it's a great pleasure to have you here with us today. Pleased to be with you, Petros. For those of you who don't know, uh, Dr. Aaron Edwards is a senior lecturer in defense and international affairs in the faculty for the study of leadership, security, and warfare at the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, where he teaches on an international security studies course. He is also an honorary research fellow uh, at the School of History and Politics and International Relations at the University of Leicester. He was awarded his PhD in politics and international studies from the Queen's University of Belfast in 2006 and led a major EU-funded peace and reconciliation program at INCOR, a University of Ulster, United Nations University Center for Excellence in Peace and Conflict Studies in 2007 to 2008. Originally from Belfast, Aaron was involved in several Track 2 initiatives in Northern Ireland, ranging from designing and helping to implement a disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration strategy for one of the armed groups to facilitating intercommunity dialogue at the United Nations International Leadership Institute in Amman, Jordan. He continues to be involved in intercommunity dialogue in Northern Ireland. Since joining the academic faculty at Sandhurst in 2008, Aaron has delivered education and training courses to government officials, diplomats, armed forces, personnel, and police officers in over 25 countries worldwide. He has also delivered high-level briefings to a range of audiences, including the UK Cabinet Office on the challenge posed by Northern Ireland-related terrorism, the Nigerian Army Chief of Defense Staff's Conference on Future Asymmetric Security Challenges and the Senior Leaders Seminar of Ex-Bright Star on the UK's Experience of Counterterrorism Operations. Dr. Edwards was elected also as a Fellow of the Royal Historical Society in 2012 and became a Fellow of the UK Higher Education Academy in the same year. He is the author of several books, including most recently Strategy in War and Peace, a critical introduction published with Edinburgh University Press 2017, UVF Behind the Mask, Marion Press 2017, and Agents of Influence, 
Britain's secret intelligence war against the IRA, which was recently published by Marian Press in 2021. So, Dr. Edwards, it's uh, quite a, a rich profile that you have. You have quite an in-depth experience. I wanted to ask you, however, if you could begin by giving us a general overview as to how you have developed an interest in this field. What exactly inspired you to uh, deal with these uh, topics that you're, you're dealing uh, with, uh, as mentioned in your profile? Oh, well, thank you very much for that very kind introduction, Petros. Uh, my interest in conflict studies, in terrorism, political violence, uh, and strategic studies really began back in Belfast some time ago. Uh, when I was a, a young student, an undergraduate student, and I tried to resist the urge in my international history degree to study the conflict that was outside my my own home, uh, outside my university. And by my second year, I was persuaded to look at it in a little bit more depth. And I suppose in a curious way, it might seem counterintuitive to some of our listeners that that I may not want to study the conflict, but I believed that I knew quite a lot about it because I, I had experienced it firsthand. But the reality was I did not know very much about Northern Ireland, about the conflict there. And as a student, I then took more modules uh, looking at Irish history uh, and uh, tried to, certainly by my final year as an undergraduate, really connect the dots uh, intellectually to try and unravel the real mystery behind what caused the conflict there and uh, why it was perpetuated for so long. But something else uh, happened then, and that was my, uh, of course, I, I've always uh, enjoyed traveling. And uh, I, I started to think about other places, visit other places where there had been conflict in the past or conflict ongoing. And certainly by the time I'd come to uh, undertake my PhD on uh, an aspect of the Northern Ireland conflict, I was persuaded that there were connections with different places and that one of the best ways really to look at this in, in greater depth was to apply more rigor to it uh, as uh, as a student uh, and then subsequently as a, as a scholar. So my interest began uh, in Belfast, um, but has uh, grown since then. And I would say that I have much more of a comparative interest with uh, conflict zones around the world today. I have to say that uh, as a conflict and security studies, uh, student myself, I also enjoy looking at this comparative dimension and also uh, traveling as well, but which unfortunately is something that we cannot really uh, do uh, today because of this pandemic. We are very limited in that, which is why we also need to uh, take some time perhaps and understand the more deeper and uh, profound insights that we can draw from disciplines like history, which sets the background, it establishes a good framework of analysis uh, to understand uh, political violence as such. And allow me to begin by asking you then, because I know that you are using certain frameworks in your research, such as strategic theory. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, what does strategic theory help you explain and what hypotheses are you drawing from such a framework in your research? Strategic theory has always been a very interesting conceptual framework for me uh, as a student, certainly a student that has straddled um, the study of politics and history. 
Uh, in my undergraduate studies, I uh, looked particularly at the field of political history. But actually, uh, earlier than that, my studies in, say, for example, the development of socialism, modern political thought, had me looking at the genealogy of ideas going back many centuries. And uh, one of those uh, thinkers that I, that I arrived at uh, quite late, actually, uh, was Karl von Clausewitz and uh, his uh, magisterial book on war. And that book and others like it, for example, uh, Sun Tzu's The Art of War, really intrigued me because of the timeless quality of what they were explaining. So they were talking about various wars and conflicts, case studies, if you will, but that they were analysing them according to the principles of the strategic theory framework. And so this, for, for me, helped me to understand the dynamics of conflict in much more depth than I had ever expected to study them. And so it, in many respects, it goes to the subterranean aspects of conflict uh, generally around the world where we see people caught up in fighting, which as Karl von Clausewitz would say is the central component of war. But what they're essentially trying to do uh, and this is where my my studies as a political science PhD student comes into play, where I'm trying to understand what it is that they're trying to do. So Clausewitz teaches us that war, for it to be political in its nature, it, to, to have a purpose, uh, to have logic, it has a grammar of its own, but to have that kind of logic really must have that overarching political end in sight so that the fighting is directed for specific reasons. Fighting uh, and armed conflict breaks out for, for a variety of reasons. But that when you look at it from a strategic theory perspective, what you're really looking at is the ends, ways and means. How do people expect to get what they want? Why do they turn to force? Why do they think that force is much more of a decisive instrument than, say, dialogue? Uh, and so these ideas really have uh, fired my imagination and have helped me in my work as a uh, as a lecturer working in uh, the professional military education environment in my teaching in my research uh, in my day-to-day -day interaction with those people who are in uniform whether they are in armies or or militaries or indeed diplomats who understand strategy from a range of perspectives, but certainly in the military sense, would have a good grounding of Clausewitz, of Sun Tzu, and, as, and, and of all of the other theorists from the past, you know, few thousand years of strategic history. I'm actually fascinated by how time, how timeless these, uh, these pieces of literature are, and how they are still widely used today. They trigger a lot of uh, intellectual debates as well, but. I belong to the school of thought that considers these pieces very applicable today. And uh, because of these uh, debates and contested concepts, I want to look at other contested concepts such as political violence and terrorism, which are the underlying uh, points of discussion uh, for this episode. If you could give us a brief explanation of what the main difference between political violence and terrorism is, and how you understand and interact with, uh, with these terms. The first thing to say here is that 
political violence is a much broader category employed by both scholars uh, and those involved in political violence. The key, the key aspect of this is a political component. Politics is about power and relations between those who have it and those who want it. The expression political violence emphasizes this, but it, I, I do not think we can fully retreat from the central component of violence, which is about shedding blood, um, or at least attempting to shed blood. There can be bloodless violence, of course, but using aggression, threats and intimidation for political ends is certainly how I would interpret it. So I would uh, hone in on the political component. In terms of terrorism, that is a, a pejorative term. I, I realize that it's not accepted uh, as, a, as a concept by everyone. There, there is a critical terrorism studies school that have been very active in pointing to some of the contradictions inherent. Um, but certainly from my point of view, uh, emphasizing the political dimension of terrorism is the most important uh, way that we can help explain some of the phenomena that we encounter around the world today and have done, obviously, in the past, uh, because terrorism is not a new phenomenon. Do you agree with the view, however, that although we use all these different terms, we, we do, uh, like, in the case of critical studies on security, on terrorism, I, I feel that they, despite that, you know, the, the, the various intellectual disagreements between these different schools of thought, I think they do offer some substantial contribution in answering questions like how. So, for instance, understanding, looking at things beyond the much more application of simple, simply applying a concept in practice. I think the sort of abstract sometimes or uh, theoretical debates that they trigger they are still useful for analysis, even though sometimes not really applicable in more fixed cases. Do you think that they still have, you know, those critical schools have some contribution to these uh, debates that we see in terms of, you know, shaping our understanding better of terrorism, let's say? Yes, I, I would agree with you. I mean, it it is a tendency, I think, in academia generally, in the arts and humanities, to disagree with people for the sake of it. But I think the reality is that we must take on board various uh, positions on this and conceptualizations of uh, the phenomena that we see out there. Uh, and some of it's very violent, of course. We owe it to our students, we owe it to uh, our colleagues, we owe it to uh, wider, uh, the wider world, really, to, to get the best uh, and most appropriate analysis uh, for uh, helping to explain and uh, and certainly from my point of view to alleviate if we possibly can some some of the calamities that we see developing around the world so i do think that that those uh, other schools such as critical terrorism studies there are lots and lots of other schools uh, critical of this um you know position on terrorism this traditional uh, position but i think that certainly they add to furthering knowledge and uh, ultimately that's really what i'm interested in uh, and uh, you know i i certainly I, I i can understand the idea of wanting to explain how these phenomena uh, develop and come about i'm more interested i think from a strategic perspective in the so what question you know what does this actually mean and uh, one of the great uh, thinkers i think uh, who asked that question i encountered him a number of times on a one-to-one -one basis, uh, and that was uh, Professor Colin S. Gray, who called the, the so what question in strategic studies uh, his North Star. And I think that, that that should guide us really 
Um, ultimately, we're talking about a very practical activity. Uh, and, uh, you know, the human dimension is intriguing to me. And uh, I'll speak more about that later on because it's for, it forms a, a unique and important part of my latest book. But uh, as I've said, some of these subterranean developments within conflict, it's important to try as far as possible to explain those in a sophisticated manner and, uh, uh, you know, a sophisticated, you know, intellectual way. And so the only way really to do that is to build up uh, a bit of a scorecard in terms of the for and against uh, aspects, the pros and cons. And I wouldn't say that strategic studies and certainly some of the theorists that we've already mentioned are the only ones out there. And uh, you've already alluded to, you know, this debate over whether the, you know, it's the nature or the character of armed conflict of war that changes. And uh, I, I find in my profession, in my academic work with the military, that there's sometimes a misunderstanding of that. That even though uh, Clausewitz and others are pains and and Colin S. Gray to to emphasise that the nature of war uh, does not change, but the character almost certainly does. I think that there is still a tendency to see. Um, conflict today has fundamentally changed and perhaps we might talk more about that right but looking at terrorist activity would you say we can study the exact same patterns as observed in other political actors initiating or prone or being prone to political violence through strategic theory in your view that's a great question i think it would be wrong to understate the pejorative ring that the term terrorism brings into discourse into academic discourse in everyday life you know we have to have an exchange of views on this however i think that uh, we can reinsert the political core back in the rationale you know the why is it that people resort to violence are those conditions the same in one society or another? Can we look at it generically? I think I'm bound to say that from my own interest that we should be very careful of conceptual overstretch. And so I would tend to be of the view that you have to understand the context. And sometimes that means being quite inductive in, in your approach to research and uh, not uh, making false connections or connections that really are very flimsy. And so I think that certainly you can establish patterns in a given context and they will change over time. So uh, just to give you one example, uh, it, there, is a, there is a debate in the media currently quite exhausting actually about the current violence in Northern Ireland. And people are pointing to the, the Troubles period, which is siphoned off as this period between 1969 uh, and, uh, you know, 1998 when the Belfast Good Friday Agreement was signed, as if that was a very violent period entirely. Um, that violence ebbed and flowed during that time. There was a very different context to the outbreak, to the, um, the what was happening in the 1980s uh, and the form that that uh, that that kind of terrorism, political violence took. Uh, and then by the 90s, we see completely different set of circumstances that some scholars would say had led to uh, a mutually uh, enticing option or a mutually hurting stalemate, uh, which meant that uh, those political actors then uh, and those military actors opted for uh, an alternative. And so 
the debate that, that's going on at the minute, I don't think is terribly informative because it's comparing apples with oranges. And so the patterns that we see now are completely different because they are different and the context is completely different. That doesn't necessarily mean that the violence should be looked at as anything other than quite uh, horrific and uh, and having very dangerous consequences, I think, for a lot of people. There is this tendency to reach for something, uh, a kind of template, if you will, and apply it to almost every set of circumstances. Now, the good thing about strategic theory, I think, is that it's flexible and, uh, and that it recognizes the importance of context uh, as well as some of the other variables that we might pull out to try and understand the dynamics of conflict. I'm not trying to say it's the only way to look at a conflict, but it's certainly a good starting point. Yeah, I'm not of the impression that we there's always one single universal type of model that we can apply in every single case. I don't really think that's actually possible, especially because uh, it depends on context. It depends on so many other things, so many other variables. Also, I want to ask another question, uh, which involves both the practical and theoretical applications of uh, this following problem in uh, more recent conflict and political violent cases, we've seen how difficult it is to distinguish between insurgents and civilians, as well as guerrilla fighters, terrorists, non-combatants, and so on. There's a plethora of different actors here, uh, and obviously some of them don't even participate willingly in any conflict as such. And this is actually a major problem in asymmetric and hybrid warfare, particularly if we cannot identify whether these non-combatants actually fuel insurgents in other ways. And uh, through information, by supplying them, providing them with uh, resources so that they keep on fighting and so on. Uh, and tracking insurgents has become more difficult and uh, the armies constantly run the risk of killing innocent innocent onlookers, thus uh, inadvertently fueling the insurgency further. How easy do you think it's uh, actually it's possible to address this problem in practice, but also in theory? That's a great question. In fact, it's uh, as you've laid out, you've laid out perfectly there the challenge, really the cognitive challenge of understanding these violent phenomena uh, in a practical and a theoretical sense. So I think uh, dealing with the kind of practical aspects of this, I interpret insurgency literally as the, you know, the overthrow of an established government, you know, as a, as a, as a one-shot deal uh, to, you know, completely reconfigure the political system in a way that supports those who have been contesting the power. So we can say that, for example, you know, an insurgency along the lines of what the Taliban are trying to do. I know the Taliban are a very complex organization. In fact, soldiers on the ground, British soldiers had a tendency to label everyone as Taliban who had picked up a rifle. But I think that in Afghanistan, it's a great case study and a very unfortunate case study, sadly, because of a number of civilian deaths that have occurred where you do have people who uh, become involved in this insurgency for a variety of reasons and some of them are not classical insurgents according to say international humanitarian law they don't carry their arms openly they don't adhere to the law of armed conflict they don't have an emblem that distinguishes them from civilians there's a whole range of identifying marks that international humanitarian law helps us to look out for. 
on the ground in some of these uh, battlefields, battle spaces, and uh, they just aren't there. And in fact, David Kilcullen, uh, former Australian army officer, wrote a very interesting and intriguing book that I first read in 2009, I think it was published, uh, and, uh, and, and that had quite an influential uh, impact on me and how I saw conflict. He talked about accidental insurgents, uh, accidental guerrillas, was of course the name of his um, his book and that could include civilians farmers for example who see people on their land pick up a weapon uh, a rifle uh, and fire back or it could include civilians who are merely reacting to something that has happened instantaneously in their village or in their surrounding environment and they've been quickly identified wrongly as insurgents so i think that this points to the blurring of the categories that you also mentioned. And I think that that is a problem practically because guerrilla fighters, terrorists, non-combatants, they could actually exist in the same person. And that's a quandary that not only faces academics, but as you also alluded to, practitioners. So in a theoretical sense, we could say simply that if they conform, if insurgents conform to, you know, what we would classically see as an insurgency, if they're explicit intent is to overthrow the government, if they behave in an organized way, if they're targeting military personnel, then we can say, well, they're they're insurgents, they're guerrillas. But but in practice, and again, I I I do want to emphasize this is a very real issue. It's a very real problem, not just for academics, but for practitioners. How then do you explain the other activities that they get up to. So it is complex. I think the world is much more complex than it was during the Cold War. I think that the way we understand conflict and understand the concepts of insurgency and terrorism has just grown. How we have adapted to that, I think there are still lots of unanswered questions. I don't believe that we fully have a grasp of what these violent phenomena are even today. So with all the ink that's been spilled by academics, uh, whether that's in terrorism studies or uh, looking at political violence generally, there is still a lot of unanswered questions. So I by no means have any of those hidden answers for you today. <laughs> yeah, I understand it's uh, quite, it's virtually impossible to have every single answer to these topics. Sadly, there's. I've seen people claiming that they do have the answer to all of these questions, which I don't really buy into it. I think it's much more, as you said, it's definitely much more complex. It's much more complicated today, which is why, in a way, it's also quite stimulating intellectually because there's so much more than we actually see or we think we understand about these issues, and which is also perhaps why it's it could be useful to always engage in dialogue with other disciplines as to better understand how conflict in general evolves today. Before we go into discussing the more modern practices, I want to ask you about your book. You've uh, previously addressed, obviously, topics related to Ireland and Northern Ireland, strategic studies as a concept, and modern history and intelligence, among other topics. And your latest book, Agents of Influence, Britain's Secret Intelligence War Against the IRA. It explores how British intelligence managed to gain access to the Irish Republican Army apparatus 
and you have even incorporated several interesting testimonies that, that explain how this was actually possible. Would you like to share a few of these techniques you highlight in your book, how British intelligence was able to do that, their limitations, and what sort of insights can we draw from these practices? Sure. I think the first thing I should say by way of a preliminary look at this, um, it's a much broader field. Covert action, intelligence studies, intelligence history has a, a long history. and uh, but, but in Ireland, it does not, academically speaking. So in, in recent years, we've had the development of a, of a subfield, if you will, of looking at this missing dimension to the Northern Ireland troubles. And there have been various scholars working in this a lot longer than me, people like Dr. Tony Craig, Professor Neil O'Doherty, Dr. Samantha Newbery, Dr. Thomas Leahy, so many others um, that I can't really talk about at the moment. But I think that it's important to say that this is the developing area. And, uh, and so what we've been able to do in recent years is use the Freedom of Information Act, which is a, an act that was passed by uh, UK, UK Parliament, um, Labour government in the year 2000. And that enables citizens to ask for uh, official government documentation or documentation held by other sort of government or quasi-government uh, non-government bodies and uh, to get that information and what what we've been doing and what some of some of us uh, who are actively publishing in this area have been doing is using that piece of legislation in the UK to really try and and dig down deep into this the intelligence the missing dimension the intelligence aspect of the Northern Ireland Troubles. So in a sense, you could say that although a lot of these techniques have been around, freedom of information is relatively new. There, there have been other academics like Dr. Stephen Dorrell, who used other open source techniques in a quite interesting way and have been teaching their students uh, these techniques for a, a number of years. It's come really into the public limelight through the work of Bellingcat. Um, and it's often thought that these techniques for gaining uh, insight into uh, secret history, histories and covert action are, are new. In fact, they're not. The academics, journalists have been doing this for some time. But what you're really doing is you're taking a kind of approach, a methodology used by journalists, and you're framing it in an intellectual and a very sophisticated academic way. And, and so that's what is unique about what I've been able to do in my book. For the first time, I've been able to track down some of these former agents, some of these spies, using techniques that journalists have been using for many years to not only interview them, but also to put alongside the documentation that I've managed to have declassified by the British government and really to check and see what kind of information, secret information they were collecting. And more importantly, to what use that was being put. So I'm interested in the political dimension of this. How did the British maneuver the provisional IRA into a position in the 1990s where they were effectively suing for peace. Uh, and uh, that is, of course, a very contested academic uh, debate about whether the IRA were maneuvered or in a position by the British state uh, and their intelligence services or whether they came to that position willingly. But nonetheless, uh, I think that my book and the research that I've been doing over the past decade uh, really helps us to understand that missing dimension in a more informed way. 
it's you know quite quite intriguing to actually listen to this because you know I'm very aware of the uh, Freedom of Information Act that was passed in the UK, and I was also looking at comparatively how whether there's anything similar in Cyprus as well, and sadly we don't have that, and also. Academia in Cyprus, when it comes to this very specific field, this uh, nexus of cover ops, security, intelligence, and so on, I can actually count only four or five people who are involved academically in this field. There, there's actually a lot of ongoing debates at Parliament as to whether they should be opening up more, whether they should be, uh, you know, declassifying certain documents for the wider public. It's actually, you know, very interesting to see how policymaking in this regard can actually shape research instead of the other way happening, you know, the other way around instead of research and academia shaping policymaking. And I guess those, both of those processes, they can work together. But based on this, how, how, do you, how comparable do you feel that today's human intelligence practices as compared to those that you are exploring in your book in an era where technology and more advanced intel methods are exercised how, how comparable is this today that's a great question i think we live in a vastly different world than uh, we did 40 years ago when the british intelligence agencies were combating the provisional ira however i know from the release of information into ongoing court cases, for example, that many of these techniques remain the same. Agents, uh, as I refer to them, uh, they're also known as sources. Today in the UK, they're referred to as covert human intelligence sources or CHIS. Uh, that's, uh, that's the UK's uh, you know, um, understanding and interpretation of what it is that they do, uh, they are there in a way to feed information to the state. That is is certainly happening because, it, as I've said already, there is a timeless quality to this. Spies in the opposition camp is something that Sun Tzu wrote about, and I think that certainly has been useful for states to get an insight into two aspects of the uh, terrorist challenge. The first is the structure of terrorist organizations human beings can uh through subtle means can can then unearth some of this hidden wiring that that holds together the terrorist organizations can explain who leads them what role they have can talk about connections between human beings in uh, very hard to reach communities where surveillance equipment cannot cover but i also think that it importantly uh human intelligence can offer the state and any other state or non-state actor that uses it, an insight into the psychology of the people that they are trying to combat, the terrorist groups they are trying to combat. So the psychology is very, very interesting. And um, certainly from my point of view, uh, as a as someone who, who writes about terrorism and who lectures about terrorism, I'm very interested in the structure of terrorist organizations how they operate, but also the psychology, uh, what you know motivates people to become involved in terrorism. So I think that those questions are still being asked, not just by academics, but by practitioners. I guess it ties to psychology. These are important questions, and which is why we require perhaps a more interdisciplinary uh, discussion uh, so that we feed in all these different practices with uh, other fields. It's absolutely fascinating to, the, to see this 
uh, happening in research today. It's actually why I guess a lot of us are very passionate about research and uh, academy, academia itself. This final question I want to ask is perhaps very open-ended, but uh, just for the sake of uh, the ongoing discussion on this, how do you feel that research related to strategic and security studies help with tackling modern security, political violence, and terrorist threats in practice? I mean, it's very open and the question I understand, it's very broad and perhaps there's no single answer to this. I would answer this question from my professional uh, standing as, a, as an academic working closely with the military uh, and with the armed forces in the UK and overseas. And I, I think that what makes me slightly different from one of my colleagues uh, in a university setting is that uh, I have the responsibility uh, as well as the uh, ability to talk to people who are in a, a position to do something. And why I'm very ethically minded and very morally concerned about you, you know, how that information is used. The only thing that I would say is that um, we must understand these phenomena if um, we are to make the world a better place. Now, I think that it's certainly armed forces have come under intense criticism for very public interventions overseas where they have not gone according to plan, where there has been public outrage about various uh, incidents and episodes uh, that, um, that mean that states you know, have come under intense criticism. And in fact, in the UK, we had a very public inquiry about the Iraq intervention and the lessons to be learned from that. And one of the key lessons that came out of that public inquiry was that we must understand the context better. Otherwise, you have the, the red carpet almost rolled out in front of you to make the same mistakes again. And I see the same mistakes intellectually and cognitively being made by people that really they should have learned from. And uh, I think my own personal role is to not only remind people of, uh, you know, the complexity of the past uh, and also the, the need to understand not only their opposition, but also themselves, uh, which of course is a great precept from, uh, from Sun Tzu, but, but also actually to, um, really help, I think, paint a, a much broader intellectual picture, drawing on some of the best research that I can get my hands on. And, and so it's not just about me going out and generating, collecting, collating, uh, analyzing and disseminating this, and for this research myself, but actually drawing on some of the very best scholarship in strategic and security studies that I think is really first class in helping practitioners understand the phenomena that they encounter. A great portion of this is about understanding this. I really appreciate this uh, very thorough, very uh, interesting conversation. I feel that we could be uh, discussing these uh, issues for many hours. But with that being said, I'd like to thank you so much for the discussion. It's been very insightful. We're including in this podcast description your book, your latest book on agents of influence. It's uh, definitely very promising and uh, it's very important to understand, as I've said, these very different techniques that uh, were used. And uh, again, thank you so much, Dr. Edwards, for making the time with us. And I wish you all the best with your future work. Thank you very much, Petros.